Welcome to the Wednesday night edition of the Georgia 2024 show. I'm here with my co-host Bill Quinn. Welcome, Bill. Hey, good evening, Todd. So we are brought to you by the Georgia Record, georgiarecord.com. Please put us in your daily scan, sign up for our newsletters, sign up for our Rumble channel. All of it's there and all of our social media. We need to grow this network and this this show and this uh, paper in Georgia and save Georgia. So please support us. We're very focused on the fight. We have a uh, interesting show tonight. We have first I did. I was the moderator for a panel for Moms for Liberty in Avon, Connecticut this week. And James Lindsay spoke and he was fantastic. So we're going to play part one of that speech tonight and we're going to do part two next week at some point. But I think you'll find if you haven't heard James talk about education and about the Marxification of education, you'll find this extremely informative. So I know Georgia is very focused on education, and James is just fantastic in the way he presents all the information and does it in a very unapologetic way. The markets are roaring. We've got a lot of squirrely things going on, which is to be expected when you're in a, a middle of this fourth turning. We've got Bitcoin moving higher. We've got oil moving higher. We have interest rates moving higher. Stocks are falling off as everything gets more expensive and the company's bottom lines and their valuations drop. So what do you do? Uh, a lot of people have lost a lot of money in their bond portfolio. Uh, they may not know that, but you may have, especially if you own longer term dated securities, whether that be treasuries or or uh, corporates or municipals or something like that, you need to check where your portfolio is and check with your advisor. And we luckily have an advisor for you. David Cross is a friend of CDM and of the Georgia record. Everybody in Georgia knows him, at least on our side of the football. So uh, uh, Bill, run his quick ad for us. Thank you. I'm sure will. I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. So in addition to David, we have Garland Favorito, who's going to talk a lot about judicial corruption. This is an issue across the country, not just in Georgia, and we're looking forward to that. I think uh, Garland will be very informative of all the cases that have essentially proved election fraud in Georgia, but are being held up by the courts. So we need to apply pressure there, as we have applied to the legislature and elsewhere. Talking about the markets, uh, we, we had the budget come out from the, or at least the uh, budget deficit from the Treasury this year just came out. They delayed it for a while because the numbers were so horrific, but it was close to $2 trillion. They thought it was going to be about $1 trillion. So obviously, this is highly unsustainable. Bill and I are going to talk about the new Speaker of the House later in the show, but this issue with the budget is just frightening, and we don't have much time to fix this issue. So is your 60-40 portfolio that you had probably you know equities and bonds, where does it stand? I, I would suggest you talk to somebody who knows what they're doing and David Cross definitely knows what you're doing, what he's doing. So talk to David and, and get your portfolio straightened out. I also uh, used to trade on Wall Street and uh, I wrote a book uh, a while back years ago called Currency, which kind of forecasted a lot of this. It's a novel historical fiction. 
I've got some inventory of these books that uh, they're being re-released by a new publisher. So I'm trying to move some inventory. So if you go to ltodwood.com, we have some package deals there for the novels. And if you get one tonight, I'll throw in the nonfiction on the Korean War, The Lost Bastards, which is a fascinating uh, story. And we're trying to make that into a movie. So ltodwood.com, go there and get 20% off. All the prescient novels that I've written, which I think you'll find kind of foretold everything that's happening. So, Bill, you got anything for us today? Well, we've got a number of things moving this week. We'll uh, we'll be talking, uh, as you said, about uh, the uh, new Speaker of the House and what that might mean. Um, we uh, It'd be interesting to see what Garland has to share. And there's more beyond that, too. There's this sense of a lot of things, uh, both in uh, ju judicial circles along with legislative circles, that are somehow being held up. And uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that um maybe maybe a bit tonight but certainly on sunday so we've got a bunch of interesting things coming up this week so with that why don't we uh hear what the first part one of james Lindsay's talk to the mothers for liberty moms for liberty in avon connecticut this week that's great here we go just asked how long she wants me to speak and she said whatever i got so um <laughs> it, there goes your saturday <laughs> So thank you for having me to Connecticut. I'm very excited to be in Connecticut, believe it or not. Um, a lot of people are pretty down on what's happening here in Connecticut, and I actually am already taking some inspiration from seeing the energy here, not the energy out there. I'm getting used to that. But uh, the, the truth is that, that our country is in a lot of danger right now. I think you guys know our country is in a lot of danger right now, and that's why you're here. And two years ago, three years ago, when I would come to places and try to do these talks, very few people would show up. People would think that what I said sounded like a conspiracy theory. And now we know that when somebody says something is a conspiracy theory, it means it's something true that they don't want you to believe. And so my friend from Texas calls them future facts. So <laughs> I'm here to give you some, I guess, future facts. They're really present facts, uh, but they'll become true in the future, at which point it'll be good that it's happening and we should do more of it as, as we know how the story goes. It's not happening, but it's good that it is and we should do more. So I do want to speak some truth about what's happening. I know that Connecticut's been a place where the truth has been a bit suppressed. Uh, there's a very pathetic attempt to suppress the truth outside. I'll start with that. They think that we're acting in hate in here. Well. Just to put it on the table, I'm sure they would want you outside. They would want you to know this. If you don't know this about me, I was recently named by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an extremist. And I has, <laughs> well, thank you. And they classified my extremism. I don't think they knew how to classify it because they put me in a category called general hate. <laughs> so I thanked them for the rank as opposed to, to thinking as a category, uh, category of um, what I do. They didn't know how to categorize me there. I just got in trouble for pointing this out in Minnesota where it was much more appropriate. I went to Minnesota about a week ago and I gave a talk there and I told them that the second thing that they list as my hate activity on my Southern Poverty Law Center profile is in fact that I made fun of George Floyd on January 6th. That's really there. I made fun of George Floyd on January 6th. What I did, just so you know, so that sounds a little strange, is that I said that, that January 6th is like Democrat Christmas and people who fight for George Floyd, the spirit of George Floyd will come and give their kids presents. 
like Ukraine fights for justice for George Floyd, I'm sure, so it gets $100 billion from Congress. This is how this works. And so I made a series of jokes. The SPLC thought that this was so awful and hateful that they put it at the very top of my profile under general hate. So when they say that what we're engaging in hate, we have to start decoding their language. That's what this is really about. When they say that we're engaging in hate, what, we, what they mean is that we're doing things that prevent the success of their revolution. That's it. They're trying to do a revolution in our country. When they say you're doing hate, what they mean is that they hate that you're stopping their revolution. So what that means is you have to keep doing those things and you have to not be deterred by being accused of hate and you have to decode for other people that that's exactly what it means. We're not engaging in hate, we're trying to stop them from overthrowing our society in which they hate. They find everything intolerable that doesn't give them their way, so they hate it. So they say this person is engaging in hate. That's all that it means. When they call you other names, it's the same thing. When they call you a racist, when they call you a sexist, or a misogynist, or a transphobe, that's the big one these days. Transphobe, everybody's a homophobe. Frankly, actually, until like five years ago, nobody knew what trans people were, nobody really cared. Until they started doing weird stuff with kids in bathrooms, nobody cared. Nobody would have said a thing. If that's what it takes to live your life as an adult, nobody really cares. But they decided to force it into women's spaces. They decided to force it onto children, and all of a sudden people started to notice, people started to, to care, and that's transphobia, because it's a form of hate, which means it stops their revolution, to point it out. But what they mean by those words has an older name in China. And I'm gonna talk mostly about education, but I wanna start by talking about China, Mao's China, in fact, in the 1950s and 60s, when Mao Zedong and the CCP took over China and established the Communist Party as the ruling party in China, which it still is, they separated the population into two broad categories, the people, and the enemies of the people. The people Mao explained in 1957 are the people who support his initiative to build socialism in China. He said that explicitly. That's all it means. The people are the people who support his agenda. Everyone else is an enemy of the people. So when they say racist, transphobe, homophobe, or whatever else, those words, those names they call you, that have silenced people, that have got people fired from their jobs, that have got people's kids in trouble at school, these words, all they mean is the same as what Mao meant, enemies of the people. They're the people who are standing up or doing anything, even by accident, that hinders the trajectory of the revolution that are trying to stop the building of socialism, which they now call equity, as though that fools any of us. It's the redistribution of shares to make people equal. Okay, that's socialism. That's the definition of equity. There you go. So when they call you these names, they're doing Maoism. What's happening outside this building today, though it's obviously very funny to look at, is Maoism. Americans are a little lazier than Chinese, I guess, because it's not so uh, enthusiastic. But that's Maoism. They're trying to label people enemies of the people. Now what Mao said was that the dictatorship that he established, the democratic dictatorship, of course, operated for the people and operated on the enemies of the people. And what did it do? Things you've probably experienced. In particular, Mao explicitly said that what it would do is revoke people's right to speak and revoke people's right to vote for a period of time while they build socialism. 
but it also imprisoned people to reform their thoughts or brainwash them into adopting socialism. It also allowed the destruction and the confiscation of their property to be redistributed. It also enabled what Mao called his, his young Red Guard to go out and ravage society, tear apart temples, tear apart families, drag parents and grandparents and teachers and professors and priests out into the streets and beat and humiliate them, to attack police officers with impunity, it allowed all of these things, and this is actually what, in a kind of weak and small scale, we're seeing outside draped in butterflies and rainbows, trying to look cute and groomery. There's a big sign out there, there's a rainbow flag that says, we love you, to which as soon as I saw it, I said out loud, okay, groomer. Um, <laughs> but then I realized they might be talking about me, and I'm like, okay, I just don't swing that way, but that's very kind of you, I accept. Um, Mao did what he did through identity politics, though. What he did was he created not just the two categories of people, the people and the enemies of the people, he created identity categories in each of those two categories. He created red categories, or the red category and the black category of people. The black were the enemies of the people. The black categories were rich farmers, which meant that maybe you had you know, a little bit too much land an acre was definitely more than enough for 10 people, so if you had so much as an acre, they'd take it and split it up. Uh, having two pans to cook with in your kitchen was being rich, so they'd confiscate your property and distribute it among other people, and you'd have to borrow somebody else's because you'd been hoarding. Rich farmers, landlords. When I mentioned that landlords were a black category, an enemy of the people, when I spoke at Northwestern a few months ago, the, they let the woke in in the back of the room after everybody who wanted to come sat down, and they cheered. They cheered for, for attacking landlords. This, of course, resulted in, in mass death and murder, um, gr grotesque human rights abuses that we can't even fathom. And they cheered. They cheered. And uh, they cheered for a lot of the things Mao did, which means the young people that are taking this up in our colleges and university campuses know what they're celebrating. They know what they're doing. They're not merely ignorant of the history. They are willful participants, thinking that they're on the right side of history. So it's, like I said, rich farmers, landlords, and then the next category Mao listed was called bad elements. Bad elements. Bad elements are what? Conspiracy theorists. People who disagree, hate, domestic extremists, things that Moms for Liberty has been called. The next category was um, counter-revolutionaries. Thank you for coming, that's you. <laughs> Anybody who fights back. The last category of the black bad class of enemies of the people were right wing. That's it. The entire right wing, as defined by communists, which means everybody a quarter of an inch to the right of full-blown communism was right wing and an enemy of the people. Now, if you had these categories, if you were one of these people, enemies of the people, so were your kids, so were your grandkids. They were contagious, so were your friends, people who associated with you too much. Today, we try to, they try to call this a social credit system. They have more technological means of implementing it, but it's the same idea. If you get around people who have the bad category, the enemies of the people category, you become an enemy of the people too. So you have to shun those people. You have to avoid those people. You can't do business with those people. You can't spend time with those people. You can't gather with those people. And we started today with welcoming all you deplorables. It's the same idea, the same word, the same exact concept. In fact, Hillary Clinton, who famously called us all deplorables, 
went on to say just a week or so ago that the MAGA cult, as she referred to it, needs to be, quote, formally deprogrammed. That's thought reform. That's brainwashing. That's exactly what Mao did. We're living through Maoism now. Well, what were the good categories, the red categories? Well, it's communism. So what communists, whether it's the woke kind that we have today or whether it's the kind that were historical like in, in communist China, what they do is they hide behind identity groups that they pretend to champion while they actually disenfranchise. So for communists, it's workers and peasants because that's the hammer and sickle. So the first two categories of the red group were workers and peasants, hammer and sickle. But they don't really represent the worker. They don't really care about the working class or the peasants. They starved them. They confiscated their stuff. I know people who were categorized in the peasant class of Mao's China as red, as a red identity. I know people who lived through it and were categorized that way, and they said they starved. They didn't have more. They didn't have a good life. Their citizenship wasn't worth very much. They couldn't dare say anything that might get their red status taken away from them, even though they were dirt poor peasants. It wasn't permanent. They were just tokens for the communists to hide behind. And you can't exactly become a laborer unless they sent you to a labor camp or become a peasant unless they sent you to the countryside to do hard labor for re-education. You could become, however, the other three categories, which they were revolutionary soldier, so you could join the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, not to be confused with the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. It's the same liberation, by the way, guys. It's exactly the same liberation Black Lives Matter wanted. It's the exact same liberation the trans want. It's the exact same liberation the feminists yelled about. It's the exact same liberation. It's not about people. The issue is never the issue, as they say. The issue is always the revolution. So you could be a revolutionary soldier. You could be a revolutionary leader. So that's somebody who steps up and shows up to the protests or organizes the protests or organizes as a community organizer, I think is the word for them today. One of the words that Mao used translates as cadre, which referred actually to a cadre leader. And revolutionary martyrs. So if you died for the cause of socialism, the remaining people in your family, supposing they didn't have counter-revolutionary tendencies, might get red class bestowed upon them. We do the exact same thing today. Certain skin colors are demonized. Certain sexualities are demonized. Certain sexes are demonized whether it's through critical race theory, whether it's through queer theory, whether it's through gender ideology, whether it's through fat studies and disability studies, whichever things you want to pick, we're all getting tired of all of it. The identity politics, certain things are demonized and certain other ones are elevated. But they only count if you have the right politics. Being black is not a pass in critical race theory. Larry Elder ran for governor of California while black in the Los Angeles Times said that he was the black face of white supremacy because he's a conservative. It is only if you share their politics that you count as the identity. This is why they started capitalizing black with a B. If you have dark skin, you're just lowercase black. If you are politically radical Marxist, then you can have the capital B, and that's who they're actually talking about. And they don't tell you that explicitly, except when they do. Sometimes they slip up. For example, we had Ayanna Presley, who is this um, monster in Congress, 
who said that they don't want any more black faces who don't want to be black voices. It's not about who you happen to be, it's about what politics you espouse. She went on to say, we don't want any more brown faces who don't want to be brown voices. Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine accidentally, apparently, because she deleted it very quickly after she got called for it, tweeted out that there's a fundamental difference between being racially black and being politically black. If you agree with their politics, you're the thing. If you don't agree with their politics, you're not the thing. Doesn't matter if you're white, doesn't matter if you're black, doesn't matter what you are, doesn't matter what your race is, I should say. Doesn't matter who you want to sleep with, doesn't matter if you're trans or not. If you agree with their politics, you're the people. And if you disagree with their politics, you're enemies of the people and you get treated as such. What you engage in, in the, mo the modern parlance, is hate. And they call you names that designate you as an enemy of the people. It's the exact same process. But when you apply this to children, which is what Mao did, and this is how we get to education, you can create not just a social contagion into revolutionary fervor, you can actually create a pressure pump that pushes people into it. If you mistreat the people with the black identities, the bad identities, and you treat the kids with the red identities, the good identities, special and good. You love bomb them, you affirm them, you celebrate them. You make sure that everything's accommodating to them so that it's an inclusive space where they feel like they belong. Those are the modern words. Then what you do is you create a pressure pump. You, maybe you can't change your skin color and maybe your skin color is tied up in all these bad things that happen to you if you're say a basic white girl, but you can become politically queer. And that's just a subjective determination. You can look inside yourself, discover your gender, soul, or your sexuality, declare it, and everybody now has to affirm it, or in many states, they can take your kids away from you. It's the exact same thing. These people aren't joining an identity or finding an identity. They are joining as revolutionary leaders. They're being made into revolutionary leaders under a Maoist system adapted to a politics, an identity politics that works in America as opposed to an identity politics that worked in communist China. And the way that you get the kids into this is through, as, as we were talking about last night at dinner, stealing education. I wrote a book about a year ago titled uh, The Marxification of Education, and the subtitle says that what we're dealing with is the theft of education. Our education has been stolen from our kids, and it's been stolen from our society, and that means our future has been stolen from us because the Marxists have understood for a long time, Lenin said it, so we know they've known it for a long time, that if you get the kids, you get the future. What it took them a lot longer to figure out, took them back to the middle of the 20th century to figure out, was that if you want to get the kids, you got, you got to get the schools. And if you want to get the schools, you have to keep going upstream and you have to get the colleges of education and the teachers unions and the accreditation bodies. All of the pieces of leverage that work over the schooling process were the things that they had to get inside and capture. And our society, unfortunately, created a large number of monopolies in those domains. If you want to become a teacher and you want to get licensed, you probably have to go to a university's college of education to do so. There is no other pathway. So if they can control the colleges of education, they can control everybody who gets a license to be a teacher. Then they control the teachers, then they can control the students, then they can get the future. And this is the roadmap that they've been playing, they've been driving across for the last 50 or 60 years very effectively. 
by the middle of the 1980s, from 1985 when, it, when, when the real push started until 1992 when it is documented as having been effectively completed, they ran a march through the colleges of education to get what's called critical pedagogy installed as the default mode of understanding good education. It only took them about seven years. The way that they did it was in the previous seven years, a couple of activists, mostly one activist, went around and made sure that his communist friends got tenured in colleges of education faculty. So that when certain books would get published, they'd get pulled in and added to the curriculum. Or a course would be offered. Or it'd become part of department politics and you'd have to get struggle sessioned every day when you went to work if you didn't agree with the lunatic communist on faculty who's now tenured so you couldn't get rid of them. And they took over the colleges of education so that they could like I said, steal education from our society. What they were trying to solve in Marxist words is what they call the problem of reproduction. The education system reproduces the society from one generation to another. In fact, all the cultural institutions do. Family, faith, and education in particular cause kids to grow up to reproduce the society they grew up in. They want to grow up, they want to get good jobs, they want to be productive, they want to have families of their own, they want to do the whole thing that they learned, the values that they grew up in, perpetuate their faiths, and that reproduces the oppressive society, and that's a problem they had to solve. So what they had to do was steal education in order to get around the problem of reproduction. It doesn't matter what you believe, not to a communist. They work generationally. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is what your kids believe and what your grandkids believe. And in three generations or less, they can completely transform society if the older generations aren't paying attention. So really all they have to do is trick you about what's going on in education and they can steal one generation after another our entire future through our kids. So here's, here's how it works. There are three things really at the bottom of the, of, of, the, of the pile that education's about. There's a concept, what is education itself? What's it about? What is it? The idea of education? They stole that. There's the purpose of education. What are the ends? What are you trying to accomplish? They stole that too. And then there's the means of education, the mechanism, how you do education. And punchline, they stole that as well. So they've stolen the idea of education, the means of education, and the ends of education. I'll start with the ends. The ends of education, a lot of people, probably a lot of people in this room, have been convinced that the purpose of an education is to get a good job. At best, that's a secondary function. That's something that it is important that, the, that our schools, and especially when we go to colleges and universities and technical schools, prepare our young people and our learners, some of whom are adults, to enter the workforce in a way that's going to be you know, beneficial and, and, and successful for them. That's important. But that's not the purpose of an education. The purpose of an education is to produce a literate, functional, and ideally virtuous citizenry who understands the society that they live in, has some basic skills that they can apply to, to any sector of their economy and their lives to make the world they live in and the communities they live in a better place. That's the real purpose of education. But when you switch it over and make it about credentials, you transform the entire thing. Because whoever controls what the credentials mean, what the credentials allow, what the credentials enable, controls everything. So now the lingo in education is that we're moving toward what's called competency-based education. They're gonna identify certain competencies. Some of those are academic, some of them are social, some of them are emotional, some of them are psychological health, health competencies. 
and we're going to make sure that the kids have the competencies and then those will determine, and here's the buzzword, and this isn't speculation, this is happening. This will determine whether the kids are college and career ready. Wow, interesting, yeah. interesting talk um, with uh, the Moms for Liberty. Yeah, we'll run the rest of the, that later this week, uh, throughout the week on the other shows. But uh, James is just fantastic. I heard the talk and I was the moderator for the event, but uh, I said, wow, we got to run this on the Georgia show. So uh, just spread it far and wide because that's what's happening for sure. Yep. Go ahead. Gonna, uh, I was going to say, um, a lot of us have long COVID. I have long COVID. I have long symptoms of, you know, insomnia and other things. Uh, and if you're vaccinated, you may have symptoms. You may have multiple bouts of COVID. Um, so the objective, because the vaccine and COVID essentially are the same thing. They produce a spike protein in your body and it, produces it for a long time. We don't exactly know how long. So the quest, the quest is to purify your blood and your family's blood. So you can do that with the Z-Stack formula and you can go that, you can do that. You can go to twc.health forward slash CDM and look for Dr. Zelenko's Z-Stack formula. It's there and help purify your blood. There's, there's a formulation of different drugs that he put together that can do that over time, essentially supplements. They also have this emergency medical kit we just published there. You can We've talked about it many times. We don't know what's coming. We, we know something's coming. Uh, you know, Hillary's talking about formal deprogramming. We've got wars popping up left and right. Uh, we've got China who magically found eight new viruses on an island this week. So what is coming down the pike, we don't quite know, but you want to be prepared for your family because the CBS may not be available. So the best way to do that, go to twc.health forward slash CDM, get the emergency medical kit. This this provides enough for one adult, and you may so you may need more than one. And if you use promo code CDM, you get 10% across all their products off. So I highly recommend you take a look at this, support the wellness company, which is radicalizing and bringing really just uh, credibility back to the medical system, which is corrupt, but also helps free media because they obviously support us uh, as a sponsor. So CWM is the promo code twc.health forward slash CDM. Thanks, Bill. You want to bring Garland in now? Let's do that. Hang on. There we are. Garland, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Bill and Todd. Um, I think I've got a real life example of what James was talking about in this uh, Marxist env in, uh, environment that's being crammed down our throats. Where are well, you, Garland? You, you look like you're in a better, a diff, did you buy a new house or what's going on? Uh, well, as you know, I got married a year ago. Uh, <laughs> and now we have a dual, dual houses. I have everything redundant in case, you know, in case I end up being. Uh, that must be her house. Of the Marxist society. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm there. I'm there tonight. I've got redundant phones, redundant computers, redundant, gotcha. redundant houses. Uh, excellent, excellent. So tell us about this Marxist uh, example you have. Well, I think what well, Bill's going to get into this in a minute, but basically uh, we are the, the um, uh, uh, this whole, all these hearings and trials and things, um, the um, indictments of President Trump with no crimes, 
and they're done by political, uh, um, I don't know what you want to call it. I, I'm trying to find a, a, a decent name for it uh, uh, to use on the air, but political hacks uh, who, who are operating under the color of being district attorneys. Then you have these uh, secretly appointed judges who are highly partisan, clear uh, um, uh, documents that uh, would make them have to be recused, but yet they're still in trials. And uh, they've even got the case where uh, they're attempting to steal President Trump's assets so he can't run for uh, election in 2024. So this is all, I think, part of the communist conspiracy that James was talking about to steal the ability of the people to choose the next president of the United States and to continue to protect the people who are cheating and stealing our elections by uh, criminalizing anyone who wants to, to uh, challenge uh, the election or the integrity of, of, a, of a previous election. Right. Uh, but this is exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, which has the effect, of course, of scaring others that might step forward if if they weren't uh, watching their friends get attacked, and it scares them back in some cases back into the background. So uh, all the more important that folks gather up the courage and step forward where they uh, where they see something wrong. Yeah, exactly, Bill. All right. Well, we have some slides you uh, you you shared with us. Shall I bring those up? Uh, well, yeah, so we had a press conference yesterday, um, and this is what we were talking about. We, we actually have two parts to this, and the first part I did was the national impact of all of these cases. And, and what, you know, basically, um, there's a the judicial system has been corrupted, and it's interfering with the 2024 election. And the way that's happening is with these political prosecutions and these secretly assigned partisan judges that I was just talking about. So uh, the first part of our press conference was uh, yesterday was to go through these national examples. And then uh, we got into some specific things in regards to the, the 18 and 19 indictments here in Georgia and the partisanship on, um, of that judge who's operating uh, that, that case and presiding over it. So, so we started off, uh, Bill and Todd, with this, the indictment. You know, the, as y'all know, the Justice Department, Biden's Justice Department, is, has indicted his political opponent for 2024. Uh, on in regards to January 6th. And this, and this set a humongous, uh, horrendous precedent that was followed up by Dana Nessel in Michigan, who indicted Matt DiPerno, her, her opponent for attorney general, claiming that uh, he had tricked a judge into getting a forensic exam on a Dominion voting system that flipped 6,300 votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Uh, so this, in this particular case, you know, the special counsel is Jack Smith. And I, I just quoted uh, in this press conference uh, some of the quotes that he has in his indictment. And the first one was he said that the defendant spread lies that there has been no outcome determinative fraud in the election. 
that there had been outcome determinative fraud, excuse me. Uh, and he claimed that that's a law that was none. In reality, the truth is, if y'all you know, y'all have followed us for uh, yeah. the last two or three years, we have we have documented over a dozen cases of outcome determinative fraud in Georgia alone. That yeah, you can go to our Georgia Record Election Integrity Series and see all of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, it's it's been there. Um, mm -hmm. And thanks for pointing that out, Tom. And so um, Jack goes on to say individuals to make uh, and well, the defendant caused individuals to make and send to the vice president of Congress false certifications that they were legitimate electors. That's not what they did at all. They sent to Congress the documentation that they were legitimate contingent electors until President Trump's lawsuit uh, had uh, been resolved, and that was not resolved until the 7th of January. So this is an, another completely false statement. And we hear, we have Jack Smith accusing Donald Trump of lying, when in reality, he is the proven liar uh, in, in this indictment. And he went on to say the defendant and co-conspirators attempted to enlist the vice president to use his ceremonial role at the January 6th certification proceeding to fraudulently alter the election results. Well, first of all, they want him to be a ceremonial role, and they've actually changed the law, the Electoral Count Act, after that. But at that time, he had the full, uh, he presided over the Electoral Count, and he had full authority to do what was necessary to ensure those results were correct. And um, he, and nobody was trying to fraudulently alter the election results. That's a lie. Uh, what yeah. they were trying, what they were trying to do was to to uh, actually send the results back because there was a legitimate dispute. And I'll speak only for the state of Georgia. There was a legitimate dispute at that time. That was not resolved until after January 6th when President Trump had no choice but to but to withdraw his lawsuit because he couldn't get a judge inside, assigned uh, um, in, in time to hear it according with the statute, which requires the judge to have been design, assigned on uh, the 20th, uh, I'm sorry, 20 days after he filed it on December 4th, and that, that never happened. Uh, so I'm, that, I'm just curious as to what Mike Pence was given on the floor of the House that he looked at and put in his pocket after he made that vote. But uh, anyway, I guess history will bear that out at some point. Yeah, hopefully. Well, we'll know the answer to that question, I hope. But, uh, you know, the last thing I will say about Jack Smith is that he issued this subpoena for the Save America financial records. Uh, that's the, uh, you know, President Trump's PAC that was supporting all these indictees and so he was trying to go after the funds to cut off these indictees' uh, legitimate um, uh, attempts to defend themselves against uh, this mass money that has been assembled by, by we, the taxpayers, to uh, do all these false prosecutions. Yeah. And, and so, and the judge in this case, as uh, y'all know, Tanya Shutkin, um, she here's this couple of quotes that are really disturbing with her also lies she says that this was nothing less than an attempt she's talking about january 6 and these are in some of the hearings that she presided over for some of the january 6 defendants 
She says that this was nothing less than an attempt to violently overthrow the government. Uh, hardly, that's not true. But by individuals who were mad that their guy lost. Well, none of the people at January 6th were mad that their guy lost. They were uh, mad if they were mad at all. They were mad because they can't get an honest uh, evaluation of all of these fraud errors and irregularities that have occurred. And they, that's what they wanted, and that's why they were there. So, again, she is lying in her uh, her own orders. And she goes on to say he went, and this is talking about one of the defendants, a defendant named uh, Mr. Palmer, I uh, went to the Capitol because despite the election results, which were clear cut, Mr. Palmer didn't like the result. And, and that's a damn lie. Uh, the, the election results were never clear cut. The uh, in, in the state of Georgia, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee said that they, the election results should never have been certified because they were riddled with fraud, errors, and irregularities. So uh, just, she's literally lying uh, in her orders. And then she uh, expresses concern that uh, President Trump uh, remains free to this day. Uh, obviously, she's the one, he's the one person she's referring to. So clearly, this Obama appointee um, uh, was, should have been recused herself. President Trump basically issued that recusal uh, motion. And the, the bizarre thing about this is that she is presiding over her own motion, the motion to recuse herself. That should be the duty of a third party because right. she has a vested interest to stay on this case as an Obama appointee and the granddaughter of a Jamaican Marxist revolutionary. Uh, her, her political viewpoint is completely opposite of, of uh, President Trump uh, in, in this case that's before her. So we went on to the Manhattan grand jury um, indictment. This is the one where Alvin Bragg, y'all know this one, New York County DA, campaigned on the platform to get Trump. And he, he, he put together this 34 count uh, indictment alleging that uh, Donald Trump uh, or caused to have, have entry, um, false business record entries um, regarding those the payments that were sent to my, Michael Cohen, uh, which those were the three hush, um, alleged hush money uh, uh, payments that were made. And, uh, and that would have been a violation of New York Penal Code 175.10. So let's assume that everything Alan Bragg said was true for the moment. Well, if, even if that was true, those were 2017 counts and they are misdemeanors, and they would have expired statutes of limitations because they were six years ago. Mm -hmm. So Bragg knew that, so he had to come up with a crime uh, so that he could turn this into a felony. So he puts in this indictment uh, that, that President Trump had the intent to defraud and intent to commit another crime, and he never specifies what that crime is in the indictment. So, so it's, it's thought crime. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a thought crime. There is no, there's no felony crime in the indictment. It's an indictment without a crime. And who's the judge in this case? 
Wan Machan, another secretly um, appointed judge. Uh, he's, you know, he has a, a track record of, of being partisan. Donated to Act Blue, stop the Republicans. Donated to uh, Joe Biden for president. Uh, you know, he's entitled to do that, but he shouldn't be sitting on a on a case that is uh, uh, politically, uh, you know, uh, where he needs to be recused. He just does. He has a partisan viewpoint on it. His daughter, Lauren, is a Democrat campaign consultant, and she actually worked for Kamala Harris and Adam Schiff. How how did this guy get assigned to the case? I think that's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Right, and it's. I mean, just to, to make it clear, it's normal for judges to recuse themselves if they have a conflict of interest or e even an apparent possibility of conflict of interest to keep their name uh, clean. Yes. And Absolutely. When the judge, as you said, Bill, the, the system has got to be pristine. So even if there's the appearance of a conflict of interest, the right. judge, judges should automatically recuse themselves. And, and most of the times they do. But in this case, because they have a political motive to stay on the case, uh, they are, are, are fighting to stay on these cases. Yeah. And, and then the last one you, we've I talked about, um, or one of, the, uh, one of the last ones against Trump, uh, is this civil fraud case, which to me is an oxymoron. Uh, you, fraud is criminal, but yet they had no crime so they had to come up with a civil fraud term. Um, and Let again, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, campaigned on a platform to get Trump. And she claims that Trump committed fraud by overvaluing assets. So uh, my question for her is, where's the victim? You know, if the value, if even if what she's saying is true, the uh, banks were repaid uh, all the money that was um, was borrowed or, you know, or so far, and they have no objection, no, no uh, issue at all. Uh, everything's being paid and there's, there's no crime. So here we got another case, no victim, no crime. It's a complete abuse of the American justice system. One of the things that fascinates me about uh, this uh, approach with Ms. James is that she appears to believe that uh, forfeiture uh, of of property owned by uh, President Trump is an appropriate uh, potential outcome of this case, which flies in the face of virtually every case that I'm aware of that charges somebody with anything close to this, and and, and it and it question it makes people question. Well, wait a minute, you know, at what point do I actually own anything that can't be forfeited at somebody else's whim? Yeah. Yeah, and and that is exactly why I say that she is attempting to steal the assets of Donald Trump to inhibit his run for president of the United States in 2024. Yep. So who's the judge in this case? It's Arthur Ingeron. And um this is a guy who donated 5,000 bucks or more to Democrats and claimed in open court that Trump was a bad guy. Uh, I was amazed about this uh, when I actually go, had to go back and read that for myself because I didn't believe it the first time I saw it. Mm -hmm. But it's true. 
And uh, he, uh, you know, he also bragged about overruling uh, a jury using what, what they call judgment notwithstanding verdict uh, as a technique that he can use. And he actually goes on and talks about, you've probably seen the interview of how he, or I think he's making a speech, and he says how if the jury gets it wrong, he knows that they have uh, no way they should have made that decision. He has the power to go over and overturn them and and uh, and correct that wrong. Uh, just absolutely bizarre. And uh, Bill, I don't know if you can play that. I think you'll be able to play. There's a little five second clip of him mugging for the camera. A lot of folks have have all the seen that. I will try it, but I'm not sure it'll work on this uh, in this setting. Whoops. Okay. Yeah. Probably um, probably not um, because of the way that it's brought been brought into the uh, show. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Well, if you uh, it was only a five second clip, and you, you most people have seen it where he's smiling for the camera and smirking and everything at the opening of a trial in which he is presiding over the attempt to steal President Donald Trump's assets so he cannot run for re-election in 2024. And in that video, you, you can see, and by the way, this is up on voterj.org uh, events tab. You can see that video and everything we're talking about. His law clerk is in the video, and there uh, he is, she is again, with Chuck Schumer. Uh, Donald Trump uh, exposed this and said that, uh, that Allison Greenfield, uh, who is his law clerk, was Ch Schumer's girlfriend, and uh, Schumer has not denied this at all. <laughs> so so uh, this is incredibly biased in partisanship. It's just, it's just pure corruption is what it is. And even here, again, Judge um, Ingeron uh, has issued a gag, a gag order against Donald Trump. And that, of course, impacts his ability to campaign and tell people how corrupt these um, charges are against uh, him and in, uh, in, in these cases. Uh, both both uh, uh, Chutkin and Ingeron have issued gag orders in attempt uh, in an attempt to suppress this information from getting out so that the people, of the United States of America will know the truth when it comes to election time next year. Yeah. Trump can't say it, but we can say it. That's right. That's and, right. We, and we and we will. Yeah. So unless I'm mistaken, I believe I saw that uh, Trump was called in front of the one of the judges today, fined ten thousand dollars for speaking out, and told something along the lines of, "If you do it again, the next time will be worse." So in addition to intimidating others by persecuting um, innocent folks for these other crimes, you see them going after trying to intimidate Trump uh, by fining and yanking him up on, uh, on you know, violating this gag order. One, I don't think it'll work. I have a funny feeling that uh, President Trump will uh, have a direct answer for, for that kind of stuff. But to Todd's point, you know, my attitude is the president has spoken for us for many years now. And it's, if it's our turn to speak for him, then by gosh, we're going to get it done. You know? Yeah. yeah and, and we're going to see later, Bill, that this is more and bigger than just Donald Trump. 
Uh, it's, it's also a threat on these other 18 indictees in Atlanta and a threat on our personal freedom, our freedom of speech, and our freedom, uh, uh, really, of movement. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and so that's, that's what we're going to, uh, you know, it's just really, uh, I, it's, I call it, uh, somebody said it best on social media. They said, this is a third world Marxist hellhole now. Uh, and that's where that's where pretty much where we're at. Yep. Uh, so I, as y'all probably know, I was out testifying for John Eastman at his bar here. And this is where it gets into other issues. It's not just about Trump. Uh, they've attacked Trump, but they're also trying to attack every attorney that tried to help him, uh, regardless of what their attorney client privilege might be. That's all out the window now. So there was a bar hearing. Um, uh, for John Eastman, who was a, uh, um, and they they charged him uh, 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 with. Um, they're saying that he there was eleven count indictment, and they're saying that uh, Eastman uh, allegedly made false claims of fraud, errors, and irregularities, and he promoted a false theory that the vice president Pence could send electors back to the states when a legal election uh, dispute exists. So this indictment that they brought, which came from the 65 Project, they were the, what they call the declarant in this indictment. And that's a whole other issue as to them. They're intentionally trying to go after all the attorneys that helped Trump. But um, eight of these counts are evidentiary, and they were based on hearsay that there were no irregularities in the 2020 election. Well, I was out there for three days on the stand testifying about all the fraud, errors, and irregularities only in the state of Georgia. And the claims against him are all hearsay. You know, it's hearsay to say that, oh, there were no, there was no fraud, errors, and irregularities, and therefore John Eastman should have known better. Well, all that is is hearsay. I was out there for three days with real evidence to put on the record. I was really grateful I got the opportunity to come. And of course, John was thrilled that I was there too. So the other three counts uh, on this indictment are legal constitutional arguments. And they're not false theories. Uh, um, there is clearly, uh, uh, it was at least at a minimum debatable that vice president could send electors back to the states when a legal dispute exists. But in reality, it was so clear that they had to go back and change the Electoral Count Act in December of 2022 to make his role more ceremonial and not where he's actually presiding over, over the uh, cases. So, I was going to say that action takes on a particular color when you consider that, uh, as some people don't understand, this has happened before. Uh, the notion of a contested presidential election occurred, um, it, and it's actually been somewhat contested a number of times, but the one that, that seems closest in, in uh, retrospect is the Tilden Hayes uh, election of uh, 1876. And people ended up going, they, they, they asked um, Congress to pause. And if we recall, Ted Cruz asked Congress to pause and evaluate and investigate and in the meantime, because of certain other requirements, electoral um, uh, groups had to be chosen. And so we end up with alternate electors. Nothing illegal about any of that. 
And, and in fact, um, in 1877, they came up with what's now called the Compromise of 1877 that re resolved the dispute, but without all these trappings of, oh gosh, this was an insurrection and oh gosh, this is all felonies. You shouldn't be questioning everything and calling it false. Um, it was handled moved through and a resolution was uh, was was arrived at yeah that's right bill and there were three states that had disputed results and uh, all three of them sent, sent had dual electors and as you said um there was an electoral commission set up and they resolved the dispute in all three of those states and awarded the electoral votes uh uh in based on, I think Hayes ended up winning by one vote after being down 19. So um, that's, and, and in addition, not only the 1876 case, but the same thing happened in 1960, almost identical to Georgia in 2020, when uh, um, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy uh, had their three electoral votes there. The Kennedy electors disputed. They had their hearing. They finally got a hearing and they actually won and were and received the three electoral votes, and the judge even complimented the electors for preserving the rights for John Kennedy, and this is exactly an identical thing that Fannie Willis has has uh, attempted to criminalize. Yeah. So here's this bar hearing. Um, we got a picture of this from off the Zoom. Uh, judge Yvette Rowland in the top left corner. Uh, then you've got the opposing counsel bottom left. You've got John Eastman and his attorney, Randall Miller, in the bottom right. You can even see my wife, Tamara, in the background there. She's out to support me in her testimony. And then I'm up in the top right corner. And what I wanted to point out for folks is that when I, when I got up there, they mentioned to me that the exhibits were behind me. I turned around and looked at them. I counted 24 six-inch volumes of exhibits for this hearing. Imagine the cost that it took to put that together, millions of dollars that cannot be supported only by uh, bar dues from California lawyers. Has to be a lot more than that going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a tremendous waste of taxpayer money. But what I thought was really uh, strange, if anybody who saw the hearing uh, through live stream, they picked up on this. But the judge of this case was acting as an, a second opposing counsel. And she was trying to entrap me with certain questions. And I, of course, I didn't fall for those uh, because she was a little bit too obvious. But she was really more aggressive than the opposing counsel. Uh, I was just quite amazed by this. And she doesn't really, didn't really hide her bias at all. Most biased judges try to hide it, but she put it right out there and she was allowing hearsay uh, evidence to be introduced, uh, not authenticated, but hearsay evidence introduced into the trial. Uh, and while at the, main, at the other time, I was testifying to actual government documents that she refused to admit, at least while I was there. Uh, and these were things like the Senate Judiciary uh, Conclusions uh, report that I just mentioned earlier, that there was uh, systemic fraud errors and irregularities in the election and it shouldn't have been certified. Uh, Governor Kemp's report that confirmed that 
uh, the November 14th and 15th audit in Fulton County was loaded with issues and problems that we had uh, we had exposed. And then there was a state election board complaint as well. She would not let in. Uh, and by the same time, allowing hearsay for the other, other side. And then she would also prevent me from giving opinions uh, for the defense. But then when the uh, I started cross-exam, the first question was an opinion question from opposing counsel. I refused to answer it because uh, she was not allowing me to give opinions. And then that really infuriated her. She um, wanted to uh, force me to answer the question, but I refused to do it. Wow. I mean, it's not normal for a, for a judge to weigh in with questions of fact in these cases, is it? I mean, they can, they can have procedural questions and so forth, but usually they address that with the attorneys. Yeah, and occasion there are occasions when uh, a judge will ask a, a question, but she was repeatedly asking questions mm -hmm. uh, all to be, for the benefit of opposing counsel. Yeah. Well, I, th I think in the coming weeks, we're going to continue to explore this notion of, uh, I'll call it, um, some, would, some would say captured operations, operations both in the ju judiciary and legislative areas that seem to be acting other than in their normal mode of operations. And I, we have some other folks that I think we're going to bring on this coming weekend that will delve into that. And I bet we'll need to have you back. Uh, soon to talk more about this because as you see more of it, we want to keep surfacing it and uh, and make yeah, a point we're out of it. We're not going to accuse. We're just going to present the facts. That, I mean, there's a lot right. of people out there who are doing some really strange things. That's right. So yeah. if, you're, you, if you're in Georgia, you're going to get highlighted if you're doing that. So and Bob Cooper would be a great guest at Brandon. Right He's got evidence of the uh, more partisanship in in terms of the judge assigned to the case of the 18 indictees or 19 year in, in Georgia. That's great. Garland, thank you again for being with us this evening and uh, all, all the best on the work uh, as you go forward. Good to see you, Garland. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Todd. Wow. I didn't wow. realize that was going to be that powerful. Fantastic. I mean, it, I mean, it gets, it gets scarier with every detail that comes out and the challenge is there's hours of things that uh, Garland and other, others have gone through and the more detail you get, the worse it sounds. Yeah, people really need to wake up and uh, understand what's happening. So that's the focus of this show. So one thing we want to talk about, as always, is food security. Take care of your family. That's a big focus of ours at the Georgia 24 show and at CDM. And uh, we, we talked about medical care, but food security is, is a huge one. Our beef provider out in Nebraska, Glade Miller-Smith at FamilyFarmBeefBox.com. Will ship beef directly to your door. No mRNA. They're pumping mRNA and all this stuff. There's all kind of ways they're trying to get it into people. You know, you can leave it to your guesses as to why they're trying to do that, but don't give it to your family. So get some meat that's fantastic taste-wise and is very uh, expertly cut as opposed to what you're going to get in the store where it's mass market. They slaughter 15 cows a week. Uh, most big slaughterhouses do 5,000 a day. So it's, it's very different level of quality of the cuts and the taste and the way they dry age it. So familyfarmbeefbox.com. We've got a quick ad, a new one that we've got from Glade. So go ahead and run that, Bill. Hmm, here we go. Whoops. We roll these back up. 
Every time I see one of one of Glade's ads and and promotions, it just makes you feel good. Like yeah, it. it does, and and that's the goal. And the meat makes you feel good. It tastes fantastic, it and you can feel good about treating your family well. Bring the beef in. Decide what you want that night. Let the kids decide what cut of beef they want, and uh, cook it up, and uh, and it's fantastic. So, Bill, let's talk about the speaker race real quick. All right, let's do it. So we have a new speaker, and uh, Alexander. Jesus, I'm forgetting about his name. Uh, Mike Mike Johnson. Mike, Mike Johnson. Um, so uh, here he is. The first thing he did when he was uh, voted in was to for the nomination was to pray. So there we go. So um, what do you think about Mr. Johnson, Bill? You, you know, it's it's very interesting. There's some things that I like a lot about him. We're going to show a couple of those in just a minute. They, there's been such um, a question about anybody's intents, anybody's background, that I think we, we need to take a deep breath and judge based on actions and actions mm -hmm. going forward. The, the trappings, uh, based on uh, Mr. Johnson's background, look pretty good so far. Um, he's from Louisiana, which, by the way, Louisiana was involved in what we talked about a few minutes ago, the, uh, the Tilden Hayes controversy back in the 1800s. So it's kind of ironic that we're sitting here with another Louisiana rep. Um, he's in his fourth term. Um, he uh, was part of Trump's legal defense during both impeachment hearing. So he stood by him through all of that. Um, he also voted against certifying the election and, and uh, sided with, you know, we need to pause and take a, take a firm look at this. Um, and other than that, he's been, you know, he has some leadership roles in the past and, you know, in, in the uh, house. Um, but I, I have to admit that many report that they, that he's not been on their radar screens up to now. So a lot Depends on what happens here here on out. Um, well, the, the fact that uh, his name escaped my brain briefly means he's not a well-known figure. I mean, really? <laughs> That's right, because everybody that means something is known, to, you know, to you. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought we'd look at at a particular thing that he said. This, I believe, goes back to the um, the end of 2019, perhaps, uh, and just get a sense of his way of communicating based on a myriad of objections against this president. Representative Al Green of Texas filed a resolution in the House for impeachment after Trump called for players kneeling during the national anthem to be fired. I mean, come on. You don't like his political positions? Great, but you can't impeach a president because you don't like him. That's not how this system works. We're in a constitutional republic. There are rules here. There are standards. You don't get to make that decision. The voters in this country do. And we have an election coming up in about 11 months. Let the people decide. Don't put yourselves in their place. You don't have the right to do it. You're not following the proper procedure. You're not doing this the right way. It's a rarely used constitutional device in our history. It's supposed to be. The, the Professor Turley ended this way, and I will too. He said, quote, despite my disagreement with many of President Trump's policies and, states, and statements, impeachment was never intended to be used as a midterm corrective option for a divisive or unpopular leader, unquote. Look, we get it. You don't like him. That doesn't mean you can banish him from the marketplace. You can't send him out of his businesses and say he can't hold a position of honor or trust. You don't get the right to do that. The people of this country do. We live in a republic. I'm just sick of this. I yield back. Fantastic. I know exactly how he feels. Yeah. <laughs> 
the the other thing that he did today that I found uh, encouraging uh, was he went out did an acceptance uh, short speech in front of press with uh, with much of the um, House members and Republican House members behind him, and then said, you know, we're going to dispense with the normal. You know, there's there's normally some celebratory stuff that goes on after you elect a speaker, and he said we're going to dispense with that. We're going to go back in and get, try to get some work done. Yeah, and I found that encouraging. So. Again, like you said, uh, actions speak louder than words, but I think we have a, a Christian man who says he believes in you know the, the, what the founding of this republic was built on, and we'll wait to see, and hopefully that will come down the pike. Yep, I sure hope so. Anything else you got, my friend? That's it for this evening. Yeah, it's been a crazy week, and we'll see you Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Thank you see for you joining then. us tonight.